Hey, Flomies, it's time for another edition of the ITF Flowcast. This week, we have a guest host, uh, Joel Lamb, one of our mods, and he's going to interview Paul West. Now, Paul is a former president of the IWCA. He also owns two window cleaning businesses, Top Notch Window Cleaning in Massachusetts and also Kahala Window Cleaning in Hawaii. Now, Joel and him used to work together a long time ago, so Joel learned a lot from him. He views Paul as a mentor. And so they get into a lot of different subjects. For instance, they go deep into uh, discussion about construction cleanups and glass restoration, all the ins and outs of that, things you have to be careful with, really bad mistakes that have happened, uh, a lot of really good information that you're going to benefit from. They also talk about the difficulties of running two different businesses, one of them being very far away since Paul lives in Massachusetts. Uh, very interesting discussion there. Paul has a lot of really good insight into social media marketing, just marketing in general, all the different forms that, that might work for your business and what do you what they think uh, would work best for yours. And also they talk about water-fed pole use, uh, how uh, even though we've gotten a lot safer with using ladders and dropping and the, those types of things, the accidents from using a water-fed pole have actually risen. What can we do about it? How can we keep our employees and ourselves safe? Uh, they're going to talk about that. So a lot of really good discussion here. We're going to give now ask you to give your attention to um, Joel as he interviews Paul West. Welcome to the End of the Flow podcast. I'm Joel Lamb with Shining Windows, and we're joined today by Paul West. Paul West is the president of Kohala Window Cleaning in Hawaii and also top-notch window cleaning in Cape Cod and Boston. Paul is also a former IWCA president and a multiple time medley winner. How's it going, Paul? Good, Joel, how are you? Pretty good. Is your head this big now? <laughs> <laughs> Always try to keep it small, right? Right. So um, let's get to know you a little bit. How did you get into the window cleaning industry? Um, it was in high school and a friend of the family, uh, showed me how to clean windows on a Saturday and my, uh, dad promptly went out and bought me a bucket and a roll of those, uh, Unger pills. I don't even know if those are still around, but I think they still sell them. Yeah. And, um, a couple squeegees and strip washers and off I went on my bike. Nice. So how many years now have you been in the window cleaning industry? Um, no, that was 1988. So some quick math. <laughs> 20, 30, 31, 32, 33 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. So you've seen a lot of changes in the window cleaning industry, most likely, right? Yeah. There's been a lot of things that have stayed the same, mm -hmm. you know, thankfully some squeegees that we grew up using are still exactly the same. They were like the Ettore brass. Yeah. Some rubber has never changed, thankfully. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of things have changed as far as uh, water fed pole technology. Um, information in the glass world has changed. Sure. Yep. Yeah. As far as the information in the glass world, uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to interview you is because of your experience in glass restoration. Um, you're involved with uh, people that are studying the glass science. Is that correct? I have been involved with uh, them more in the past than currently. 
Um, but yeah, we spent a lot of years uh, studying glass with uh, different uh, different people and labs and scientists and wow, the whole gamut. So um, one of the the big issues that window cleaners run into in the field is uh, encountering scratch glass. Now, is there different types of scratch glass and what, what is scratch glass? Well, it's glass that scratches. Okay. <laughs> <It's easy laughs> uh, I mean, basically, you know, anybody that knows glass knows that it's scratchable. So if we have a car windshield and, and it gets, uh, gets used over time with different debris on it, then it'll, it'll eventually scratch. It'll show those scratches. Uh, same thing with all different surfaces. Anything harder than, as hard as or harder than glass is capable of causing a scratch. Right. So like, for instance, what are some things um, harder than glass? Um, sand, which is uh, primarily different elements of the earth, uh, many of which are harder than glass. Mm -hmm. uh, diamonds is the old go-to, right? Diamonds, they say, can scratch glass. Um, hardened steel mm. can scratch glass. Rust right. uh, miraculously goes from something as hard as, or maybe a little softer that to chemically harder. Right. Yeah, I remember um, growing up when we first got into using steel wool, that was something that saved us a lot of time. And we thought we were avoiding uh, potentially damaging glass using steel wool. But uh, as everybody knows, it doesn't take long for steel wool to go from, you know, black to brown, getting covered in rust. Yep. Um, Try to use uh, it as long as you can as a frugal window cleaner. Right. And what about bronze wool? Uh, that's something that um, maybe it's because um, I haven't been in the industry as long, but is bronze wool a relatively new product to use as an agitator? Well, bronze wool has always been around. Um, I think in our area, bronze wool was used in the marine industry a lot to uh, refinish uh, different parts of boats. Mm. Um, in that industry, it's used quite often because it doesn't corrode doesn't break down as fast, but it also doesn't leave behind shavings mm -hmm. that corrode. So in the Northeast, when we first started using bronze wool instead of steel wool on windows, it was because of the shavings mm -hmm. that could possibly be left behind and, and leave little, you know, rust spots on the white paint. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we started using bronze wool. Plus it would last longer in your pouch. You know, you wouldn't go to pull it out halfway through the day and it'd be a big pile of rust. Right. Is yeah. uh, bronze wool, is that something that you use uh, in your businesses? Uh, in Massachusetts, yes. In Hawaii, no. Mm. What's the, if you don't mind me asking, what's the reasoning for that? Uh, good question. The 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 primary reason reason that we don't use it in Hawaii is is because um, in my opinion because of the metallic screens mm. is what causes a need a lot of times to use a product such as uh, steel wool or bronze wool um, but in Hawaii 
steel is not a very common screening uh, material. It's mostly nylon. Because mm. of the high and, salt content in the air? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess there's different theories as to why that um, glass etching happens. Right. Um, because what's unique is that we face that uh, metallic burn, some people call it, or screen etch. You know, right. we face that a lot on Cape Cod because it's surrounded by ocean. Mm -hmm. But the farther we go inland, like west of Boston, it's not as, um, I don't know what it's like in Kentucky, but it's not as, as prevalent. We almost never get screen burn in Kentucky. Yeah. And so I would guess that it has something to do with the salt water and the metal. But with that in mind, even though there's a lot of salt water in Hawaii, obviously, there's not a lot of metal screens. Almost everything right. is nylon. Do you think that's because um, there's newer construction for some of the, the residences that you clean in Hawaii versus maybe some older residences on Cape Cod? Good question. I don't know the reason. They are just um, metal screens are not popular. Mm. They're just not popular. So I remember um, for those that are listening, I used to work with Paul uh, back in the day. Uh, I didn't cut my teeth working for Paul. I did that in the family business, but uh, working with Paul, um, he really helped kind of elevate my knowledge of the industry and also the levels of professionalism. And I remember working with you, you talked a lot about um, different minerals uh, or different uh, elements that are commonly found in Hawaii. For instance, the silica that uh, creates the hard water in Hawaii is a lot different than maybe a calcium deposit in Massachusetts. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah, that's on the glass restoration side. Mm -hmm. So when we worked together in Hawaii, Joel, you know that that, um, that groundwater in Hawaii is, is uh, is nasty stuff and when it comes in contact with glass which inevitably it does in a glass shower mm -hmm. um, or on the outside of a house or a building uh, when the irrigation is set up in a manner uh, that it's going to impact the glass on a constant basis mm -hmm. uh, or even a lot of golf courses a lot mm -hmm. of places are built on golf courses and the prevailing wind will carry that again, that irrigation water to one side of the property mm -hmm. on a constant basis. And because the water in Hawaii is so silicate strong, um, that constant exposure to uh, the silicates in the water, as the water evaporates, the silicates stay behind. Mm. Because silicate is a primary component of glass mm -hmm. and the silicate in the water is like a component of glass it almost becomes like a glass on glass bond mm. which is very hard to break mm. so different than a calcium deposit right what what's your preferred method of glass restoration when it comes to either um, silicate stains or calcium stains um well i can't say that we deal with a lot of calcium stains um but silicate stains, you know, there's several products that we've had success uh, using, such as Diamond Magic is a brand name. Um, 
that some many window cleaners might be familiar with, but there's others, there's others out there. Usually they can they, they carry some kind of abrasive in them. So you have to, um, you have to be aware of what you're working with because it's a, the abrasive that breaks down and sort of sands away the surface deposit of the silicate. And uh, usually there's in most of the products, there's a, you know, there's a certain type of acid mm. Um, in a in a smaller percentage, They're right? Also, uh, proprietary that uh, you know different um, different brands have different formulations that they have come up with. In fact, a friend of ours in Hawaii he invented one. <laughs> interestingly, that uh, he was using macadamia. You remember macadamia nuts, Joel? I, I think you you're the one that used to shovel them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I used to shovel kukui nuts. Oh, cocoa uh, nuts. That's what it but, was. But uh, there's a lot of different nuts out there. Yeah. Um, so I remember macadamia nuts. Yeah. Yep. Which is a very, very hard, dense um, uh, um, product. And when you grind it, he ended up adding it to his uh, blend of glass restoration paste. Interesting. And, and it worked pretty good. I remember using that product. I remember the Diamond Magic uh, was a white paste. Mm -hmm. And the macadamia nut blend was a brown paste. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so we, we're discussing buffing compounds, right? Yeah, that's primarily what you we, what we use out in Hawaii is is a is a buffing compound. Um, we use a, a an orbital machine mm -hmm. um, with a certain felt pad that we've had really good success with a Velcro backed uh, felt pad. Right. Um, that we we just buy it right on Amazon, but we have had uh, really good success using that. Uh, it's not a random orbital we use. It's a it's a straight. I forget what they call it, but a straight drive. Right. Um, and the big thing is just you know some glass will react differently, so you really got to be careful and and um, especially on glass glasses that have um, you know different. Uh, factory tints on them or mm. coatings. Is there any precautions you have to take if you're doing glass restoration with low E glass? Well, yeah, that's, I mean, like a hard, like an exposed hard coat. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you always have to be careful. A, a soft coat would come right off instantly, but a, a hard coat um, they just react differently, uh, depending on, there's been so many hundreds used through the years and every glass major glass maker that has experimented with their own formulation of uh, glass coatings has put out something different ever since probably the seventies, I would guess mm. have to check with those that know more than me, but, uh, yeah, a lot of those coatings are more, um, vulnerable to to um to damage mm -hmm. so you really got to be careful uh with what you're damaging and so how do you protect yourself against liability um so like when we do regular window cleaning we kind of briefly touched on scratch glass but when you're doing glass restoration is there a different process that you personally go through uh to reduce liability when you're you're about to begin a project yeah i mean uh, my good friend dr dufer paul dufer always uh always told me bottom line you got to know when to walk away 
like the song, right? You got to know when to hold them and when to fold them. Right. And that's, that's, uh, that's especially true in glass restoration. You, you have to be able to determine when you cannot restore that glass without collateral damage. Right. Um, so test patches are important. Mm. Uh, looking at it from different angles. Uh, because a lot of times you can't know, uh, you know, the, if, if the building is older or if you can't get in touch with who developed the property, nobody's really going to know what exactly maybe that glass and that coating is. So there's no specs to look at. So you're right. left there in the field trying to go, what am I dealing with? So is there any um, educational pieces? So if someone's wanting to get into glass restoration, where would you direct them to learn? Because preferably you wouldn't want to learn on the job unless you're working with somebody that has experience. So where would you direct somebody for glass education on glass renewal? Hmm. That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, belonging to one of the associations that have a network of people and there's there's multiple associations um, iwca wcra um you know being exposed to a network of people that do that kind of work mm -hmm. can be a huge resource right um, for questions and you know uh, just talking shop with them um a lot of it's trial and error I found through the years and it just comes with years, if not decades of experience, mm -hmm. knowing what you come up against. As far as uh, technical data in the industry, I wouldn't say that a lot exists <laughs> as far as restoring coated glass. Mm. A little bit exists about restoring um, uncoated glass. Um, for example, there's a there's a neat 10 page uh, 10 or 12 page bulletin on the IWCA website. I think it's called uh, systematic cleaning and restoration of architectural glass, something like that. Yeah, I actually just used that um, for a bit that we did. I actually cut and copied and then referenced it back in the packet that I sent. Yeah, and that was uh, that was uh, written by Dr. Paul Dufer. Um, and it's got a lot of good technical data on what uh, different buildups are, especially silicate buildups, uh, how difficult they can be to remove. But as far as getting technical on how to remove them, it, it doesn't really um, get into that. There are uh, various that I'm, I'm aware of, there are various um, vendors that sell different types of products and, mm -hmm. and even machinery, like some of them have gotten into their machinery or proprietary pads right um, but there is just countless countless ways that people experiment with so uh, we've talked about uh, buffing glass to uh, restore it from various different things um, but now what about some of the spray on types of glass restoration products. Now there's different types that are an acid that are supposed to uh, eat away the bad stuff, but leave the glass unscathed. Um, what is your experience with those types of products? I don't use them. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mean like a hydrofluoric or a hydrochloric acid? Mm -hmm. Yes. I never have used them. Um, 
I guess they just always scared me. <laughs> For one thing, you always hear the horror stories. <clears throat> but the, you know, the big thing with those acids, uh, as, as many listeners will know, and those that don't, is that you know, glass is made in such a way on a, a molten uh, river of tin so that the side of glass that interacts with the tin as it's being made in the factory always has remnants of that uh, metal in the surface. Mm -hmm. And um, many people have experienced who have used acid uh, in restoration that if you ever um, um, sporadically come across uh, a, a, a molten side of the glass, the metallic oh. side of the glass that's exposed to the elements and you put acid on it, um, you can, some people call it smoking the glass. <laughs> you can literally, you know, watch it burn. Uh, now that can be restored from what I understand. Some people right. have, have been able to actually polish out the, um, the acidic burn to the metal side of that glass, <clears throat> but that becomes restoration in itself. Right. So, and that's probably going to be on the contractor for probably not doing their due diligence and doing a small test spot. Yeah. Or, or they, or they don't know what they did. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's a good thing that we're having this conversation because um, I haven't, other, other than conversations with you, I've never heard of that, but it's always been something that it, it's intimidated me. So whenever I've done glass restoration, I've always stuck with buffing, even though it's slower, um, it does a great job. You can remove uh, practically all of the deposits on the glass and it's very, it's a safe way to do it. And if you're working within enclosed spaces, um, you don't have to worry about noxious fumes from any of these acids. Yeah, and, and that, you know, most of the um, compounds do contain a certain amount uh, of acid. Even the buffing compounds have Even some. The buffing compounds, yeah. But, um, you know, different than using a straight or diluted hydrofluoric or hydrochloric acid. And it's interesting to note, you know, and you talk to some of the guys that have <clears throat> worked with glass restoration for decades, mm -hmm. they'll tell you that. It, it's not always the case that the glass will smoke like that if you interact. So glass is a, you know, I like to think of it as a, um, almost like a living, breathing, changing, aging surface. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe it has something to do with the, how glass ages mm -hmm. over time. Uh, you know, they've, they've seen that. Um, Maybe it has something to do with being exposed to the environmental elements. I, I, I'm not sure, but not all glass on the metallic side will smoke, right? When it uh, or you know change color, discolor uh, when when it interacts acid. So it makes it even more right. To figure goes into what you're saying about um, there are educational pieces about it, but the best education is decades of experience. Um, cleaning and restoring various different types of glasses from different factories. So it, it's a difficult, uh, it's a difficult part of the industry to get into successfully without having some sort of catastrophic thing happen at least once or twice. Yeah. And the, uh, the other thing that's difficult with restoration, of course, is collateral damage. 
Mm, yeah, that's true. By collateral, what we mean is um, adjacent surfaces to the glass. So it's beautiful to be able to successfully restore a piece of glass to, you know, like new appearance. But if you've in the meantime destroyed the aluminum frames or you've, you know, left um, drip marks down the concrete facade. <laughs> yeah. Or you've um, burned all the, you know, the surrounding bushes. Yeah. Just kind of a, a little horror story from uh, our family's business is one time we were doing a new construction and uh, the bricklayers had spattered mortar on the glass. So we had bought a product that's supposed to dissolve the mortar. Uh, the technician that was using it um, didn't protect the surrounding surfaces. And so when the acid ran down, it, it took care of all the mortar on the glass, but then it got on the brick and ran down the brick. And uh, the brick was sealed when it was put on, but after that acid ran down, it, it opened up the pores of the brick and uh, it took us forever, you know, because we didn't have a whole lot of experience with glass restoration, the issues that can come with it. And when the customer complained because it, this white fuzzy stuff kept growing on the, the brick below the glass, I mean, it took a long time for us to figure out how, uh, what, what caused the issue and how to fix the issue. So, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely a specialty item, removing concrete. I think most of those concrete removers use an acid uh, called phosphoric hmm. acid. Um, most of those concrete specialty uh, removing uh, chemicals contain phosphoric. Hmm. But again, you got to read that bottle, Joel, <laughs> about adjacent services, right? And, that's uh, right. So uh, we had talked about, you have two businesses in two completely different parts of the country. What are some of the challenges that are unique to one business as opposed to the other business? Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, well, the Northeast, uh, which is where I, I currently live, mm -hmm. uh, of course, weather, uh, temperature, seasons, um, which brings about a whole uh, host of interesting challenges, you know, because you're only working seasonally, typically, um, and uh, much bigger temperature fluctuations. Whereas Hawaii is a is a year-round business, never mm -hmm. never stops. Uh, mm -hmm. We're out in the field every day. Wow, or, or every week, I should say, of the year, right. and not a lot of fluctuations in temperature. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, in, in Hawaii, the, one of the bigger challenges we deal with is wind. And, uh, yeah. I was never used to dealing with wind as a natural challenge in the Northeast. Just, uh, just didn't, but, you know, because of the mountains and the trade winds and mm -hmm. just the way the islands are set up, wind can be a huge a hindrance. So that's a couple of challenges. I know like with high rise guys, they have to check the weather ahead of time to see if it's going to be too windy to do rope access work. But yeah. in Hawaii, like in the area you're talking about, it's like, you know, the mountains go like that. It's a giant wind tunnel. So it's a constant challenge. It never stops. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the trades can stop, of course, the trade winds. Um, but on windy days, you know, we call it the river of wind coming off the mountain and it can get 
for no other reason other than simple trade winds uh, channeling through the mountains like you know mm-hmm. yeah is there any um safety precautions you have to take with working in areas of high wind uh yeah don't work on ladders <laughs> <laughs> uh watch for falling coconuts yeah, that's for real that's true I think, and that's true, right? You remember, Joel. Even more than that is the palm, the palm branches, yeah, that, uh, that come out of the trees. Those things can take out a, a full-grown man. Yeah, they uh, if they come at you on a windy day. So yeah, just general, general safety precautions mm-hmm. of uh, falling objects in the wind. Right. So then, uh, on the flip side, in the Northeast, you mentioned working in areas where there's extreme cold. Uh, with over 30 years of experience in the industry, are there any tips or tricks you have other than just layering up <laughs> for working in the cold? Is there any additives you add to your solution to keep it wet? Is there anything you have to do to protect your pure water systems? Um, yeah, my biggest advice is shut down. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the easiest way to deal with the cold. <clears throat> you know, some people can't. I know some of some of us window cleaners work straight through there. Not us, but some of you window cleaners out there work straight through the winter. Right. Um, people have used different things uh, to keep their water from freezing. Um, you know, uh, the blue windshield. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget what they call it now. The windshield cleaner. Anything from that, which is a, you know, like a diluted methanol. Mm-hmm. To some window cleaners uh, use full, full methanol and dilute it to the extent that they need to, depending on how cold it is. But you know, keeping in mind that that, that brings up challenges of its own mm-hmm. uh, with vapors and flammability and storage right. and right and all those things. But it's you know, window cleaners are resourceful. So there are. I, I I have found the most successful thing is to just shut down. Shut down. Well, <laughs> at least with you. You could shut down the Northeast and you could just fly out of Hawaii. <laughs> you just keep going. Yep. Um, I was about to ask something really profound and it just left me. <laughs> um, oh, so I've noticed uh, on your social media, it seems like you do a lot of marketing for top notch through social media. Has that been an avenue of marketing that's worked well for you? I think so. Um, <clears throat> that's a good question, Joel. I, I don't do it. Um, like many people, I just, I concentrate on what I know how to do. Right. And I have a, um, a contractor that runs my, my social media web and, and web presence. <clears throat> um, Is it expensive to have a contractor be your social media manager? Do you think someone that's like, like we have a pretty small operation. Do you think it's feasible for a small operation to have a social media manager? Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, you know, the big thing is that there's, there, there are all types. And so just like window cleaners, you know, and we're not here to talk about pricing, but we all know there's, you know, pricing for window cleaning is all over the gamut. You can get uh, one person that works for less and does it does an excellent job mm-hmm. and you can get a really really expensive window cleaner that maybe isn't even that good 
So it's the same thing in every industry. And I would say that social media is no different. Um, there are, there are some very experienced, um, low overhead experts, I would say, uh, that if you're willing to shop around and you're willing to do your due diligence, uh, and you're willing to negotiate, like our customers are always negotiating with us, right? That, that for, um, for a short amount of money, you can get a pretty good, uh, campaign going. That's good. Um, as far as the big Island goes, how do you, how do you market for the big Island? Do you have uh, Google ads going or nothing like that? No Facebook, no Google. How do you no. market in the big Island? I don't. <laughs> so how do you, how do you get new business? Word of mouth. Word of mouth. That's kind of like the, um, everybody, everybody says on social media that word of mouth is, is the best because the clients that you get already have trust in you because they've gotten the trust from someone they trust personally. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, to be honest to, to, um, to elaborate a little more. So <clears throat> when I first moved to Hawaii back in 2013 or so, when you were there, yeah. <laughs> um, we, we purchased several smaller window cleaning operations that had been in existence 20 to 30 years already. Mm. And we combined them into a, a medium size window cleaning operation. Um, and so, you know, we had um, a huge um, customer base uh, mm -hmm. to deal with already. And so like most islands, which are, is, is similar to a, just an isolated community, mm -hmm. um, you know, if you do good work and people talk about you, then there's not a huge need mm -hmm. to generate new leads. You're, you're simply trying to keep up with your existing clientele right as much as you can and yeah. by existing clientele i mean you know not individual homeowners or individual buildings but mm -hmm. as you know and as most window cleaners who deal with managers know like mm -hmm. property managers they have dozens sometimes hundreds of different projects that are constantly needing to be done so so instead of kind of doing like a shotgun approach so if you were to approach a market like Hawaii, for instance, where it's a close-knit small community, instead of doing a shotgun approach where you just put yourself out for everybody, you would do more like a laser approach and you would find like a property manager, for instance, uh, for commercial or residential who would get, if you got in with one, they would give you access to multiple projects and you don't necessarily have to have a big marketing campaign to do that. That's kind of what I'm picking up. Yeah. It's, um, I guess the difference in Hawaii, and I, I noticed this when I, when I lived there as compared to a seasonal place like the Northeast mm -hmm. is that window cleaning never ends. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just constant repetition. So whereas the Northeast where I've always cleaned windows at least on the residential side, you're usually fortunate if you're in that customer's house once every season. Right. And so they can sometimes forget about you if you're not careful. 
or uh, or maybe they forget to use you one season and it ends before they so it's just different out in a and probably like in a lot of areas of uh, the country where it's more of a year-round area there's more constant exposure to your customer and so you're just you're constantly in front of them right that's that's kind of Kind of like us, uh, we're in that situation you mentioned where as far as residential goes, even some of our commercial work, it's like once or twice a year, you know, and it's because it is seasonal, spring and fall. You know, we talked before about setting up this interview. It was a little bit difficult to schedule because we're so busy, but a couple months from now, people aren't going to know who we are, you know, so it's a constant struggle for us. We have to always keep finding ways to put ourselves in front of people, you know, without being, um, annoying you know so yeah but but i shouldn't you know in hawaii i shouldn't say even though we don't have a social media presence uh, we do have a website Mm -hmm. um and i do i do some i I would say it's more um on the way uh, i would describe it more as um reminding your customers that you're out there uh so for example uh on one of the mountains they print a newspaper Mm. and for for years i've done a small ad in that newspaper but i don't really do it to 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 um bring in a new clientele as much as i do to constantly remind the people in that community Mm -hmm. that we still exist I remember one it's time a exposure. I remember one time uh, you adopted a highway. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we were supposed to go out and pick up trash on the highways, but you, you got your you know mile marker something from here to here. Uh, Kohala window cleaning takes care of this. Right, I thought that was a very uh, neat way, you know, because it's not something you 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 have to consciously think about but in the back of your mind you're always seeing kohala window cleaning you always know kohala they're there to take care of you whenever you need yeah so i i I think in in summary there's different ways to think about Mm -hmm. reaching clients like that there's one you know you you always want to be able to um reach your current clientele right have constant exposure to them but then there's trying to reach a new clientele. So it depends where you are mm-hmm. in your business at what point in your life of how you, how you approach doing media of different sorts. So uh, do you have like in Hawaii, are you doing ma- mainly uh, residential and in uh, Boston and Cape, are you doing mainly commercial? It's a good question. Um, in Hawaii, I would say we, we mostly do residential. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do some commercial buildings, but it's mostly, um, there's not, as you know, there's not a lot of commercial buildings. And there's not a whole so, lot there to do. Um, there's some hotels and, and, and things like that, but it's mostly residential in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. In the Northeast, um, again, it's mostly residential. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't do any high rise. Uh, we don't do any lift work. We don't do any scaffold work. Mm. Um, we make good use of uh, water-fed pole technology in both places. Oh, that's awesome! Here in Massachusetts and 
in uh, in Hawaii. Hmm. Interesting. Well, as far as the water-fed pole uh, technology goes, is there any uh, anything you would recommend? I mean, you've seen this come up from basically the ground up. It's been around for a while, but it's totally changed. It feels like over the last 10 years. I mean, it's just really taken over the industry, it feels like. Uh, is yeah. there any any information you think might be valuable to our listeners uh, on the subject of uh, pure water technology and the use? <laughs> well, there's a lot of opinions, aren't there? <clears throat> you don't have to say anything controversial. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I one thing I've worried about for years is that um, as we know, just like a squeegee in the hands of an inexperienced person can make a window look worse than it did when it was at least evenly dirty. <laughs> right. I would say a, a water fed pole in the hands of an inexperienced person can do the same thing. Sure. So I would say that, I, you know, it's been on my mind for years that because it's such a low barrier to get into the industry now with water fed pole mm -hmm. uh, that a lot of people will jump into it and, and, and not maybe pay attention to the details of, uh, you know, paying attention to their, um, how pure their water is, mm -hmm. uh, their techniques, it just kind of, uh, you know, rush through it and, and might give some of, some of the professionals out there a, a, a bad reputation, or maybe, you know, um, customers will be weary of allowing water-fed pole technology on there or pure water technology to be used on their their property you run into that every now and then <clears throat> oh yeah. yeah yeah you know yeah i had somebody here that did that and my my windows were all spotted you know we've heard that right you know that it has come a long way uh one of those businesses that we bought in hawaii um was over 30 years old i remember and one of the things that came with it was the old, the old style Tucker poles. Mm -hmm. uh, you probably remember playing with those, Joel. Yeah, I did uh, some solar panels for you uh, with the old Tucker pole. Yeah, and, and it's amazing. I mean, they, in the old days, and, and some people still use them. I know, I know some guys that still use them. Uh, but man, those things are heavy and, and flexible. And oh, yeah. poles have come a long way. Um, there's a lot of different varieties. Uh, we use a we use a certain brand that we're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a high mod carbon fiber. We, mm -hmm. we love it. Really light, really stiff. Mm -hmm. um, and um, you know, we use a couple different carts. We have one cart we use from from Tucker, for example, mm -hmm. uh, out in Hawaii, and it does a, a beautiful job. Uh, this year we started experimenting uh, those guys from PH7. We're allowed oh, to talk yeah. about brands, right, Joel? Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, I mean we're we're not we're not promoting anything, but uh, an open and honest discussion. I mean we use we all use different tools, so yeah. So I, I bought a I, I bought a great cart um, that we started using this year from PH7. A couple mm -hmm. guys, I think they're out in Minnesota, and they hand make their carts, and uh, we're using that in Massachusetts now. And, um, you know, all uh, most good carts are going to, the end result is to try to get your water as pure as possible, right? That's all the same end result. Yeah. I mean, as long as you're getting pure water, it doesn't really matter. 
But I'll tell you what, one thing I want to talk about that's not pure water, but about the cart we got from those guys, which I think is just ingenious, is that it's got a dual wheel system. Huh. It's got wheels on the top of the cart and it's got wheels on the bottom of the cart, which roll on the ground. So for example, if you're going to take your car in and out of your truck or van, right, you always get to that awkward point where you get it up to your truck and right. now you got to like wiggle it into your, <laughs> into the, you know, like, you know, walk it back into the truck. <laughs> well, I thought it was ingenious what those guys did putting, just putting wheels on the top. So when you lay it down on the, on the back tailgate or on the back of the van, you just go back and there's, there's um, handlebars on the on the bottom of the machine, and you just pick it up, and it just rolls right in. And um, super smart. And it's just the way it is in our industry. Somebody's always coming up with something, yeah. you know, that's that's uh, simple, but just makes all the difference in the world. Yep, it's awesome. Uh, one thing though, I remember from an IWCA safety class. Uh, I think it was a Michael Draper course, and he was talking about. Um, how we've reduced fall deaths in the industry, but we've increased electrocution deaths in the industry just by having pe more people use the water-fed pole. There's less falling, but more electrocution. So uh, one thing is uh, there's certain poles out there that are um, resistant to electrocution, but you shouldn't, nobody should believe that simply because they have the bottom piece is resistant, that they're immune to the, the hazards that exist. Yeah, I mean, I'm not resistant to electricity. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so yeah, better, always, always gotta be aware of yeah. electrical lines. And with, with pure water, if you're doing solar panels, always make sure the glass isn't cracked on the solar panel and that there's, there's no chance uh, that the current could escape the panel and travel down to you. Yeah, I have, I have heard that. I have never, um, I've never experienced that happening. Right. But yeah. And you can also shut off the main breaker. Right. The solar panels, uh, if you're going to work on them, but mm -hmm. you just gotta, you know, all, all different setups are different. So mm -hmm. learning as much as you can about what you're, what you're working with is the key. And real briefly, before we end our discussion, you had mentioned before that you had bought multiple businesses, window cleaning businesses. We're in the process where we're thinking about buying um, a route from a local window cleaner, just a small route, but it's the first time uh, we've ever purchased uh, a route before. Uh, we've done some dealings in the past where um, routes were given to us, different things like that. And there was a transfer, you know, transferring the torch, different things like that. But this is our first time considering doing a purchase is there any sort of um knowledge you would give on the subject about uh whether or not it seems like obviously it's worked out for you but what are some cautions or what should you be looking for before you go out and purchase an existing customer list or business mm, good question joel um yeah i mean we've we, we've bought several um, bought and sold probably a dozen businesses through the years, mm -hmm. um, window cleaning businesses. And, uh, you know, a lot of the things you have to keep in mind is how bad you want it. For one thing, how well does 
the company that you're looking at fit into your current uh, customer database? Are, are they, is it in the same geographical area or is it a new <clears throat> geographical area or a new um, type of window cleaning that it allows you to grow into? So you mentioned a storefront route, maybe you're trying to bolster your storefront route or maybe you're trying to get a route in a new area. Well, all those things can, can relate to how well of a fit it is for your company. And if you determine that something is a good fit for your company to mm -hmm. purchase or a good fit for you, uh, then it just comes to the negotiation mm -hmm. of it. Um, I've always liked businesses that have been uh, established for a long time. Okay. Uh, but also have been established with a good reputation <laughs> for, for a long time. Um, because it, that's one of the things that you can't, re, you, you know, you, you, the only way you establish good reputation is through years of service. And you kind of inherit that when you, when you buy a, a, a good company that's has a good reputation. Um, so there's that when you come to the money factor, I mean, there's all different, sure. You know, all different uh, calculations that that people use. Some people do a percentage of sales. Some people uh, have those business uh, calculations of what are the earnings, and then the multiplier. And the multipliers are all over the place. So there's different. There's really different ways. What really comes down to is how much are you willing to pay, and how much is the buyer willing to sell for. Yeah. And if you guys can come to the I shouldn't say guys, if you folks can come to a meeting of the minds, then it can be a good fit for everyone. Because uh, to the seller, the value might be typically as higher than it is to the buyer because they've put their, their hard, their sweat into it. And you're, you might be just looking at the profit and loss and saying, well, hey, that's, that's grossly overvalued. But if it's a good fit for your business, you might consider upping your budget. Yeah, and sometimes timing is everything. A seller that isn't ready to sell might be higher uh, than a, uh, a sole proprietor that's ready to retire. <laughs> and maybe he's a year or two past retirement. <laughs> and he's he just wants out. out. Right. He's done. Uh, so a lot of it's timing too. Um, timing for the person that you're negotiating with. So I, I bought one of the businesses I bought in Boston mm -hmm. um, just a few years ago was an older gentleman, was a uh, uh, third generation window cleaner in this same company, started in 1914. And oh. when he was finally ready to sell, he was just finally ready to sell and be right. done. <laughs> and so it was good timing for both of us. Mm -hmm. yep. That's amazing. 1914. Yep. So uh, ultimately, uh, whether someone is uh, wanting to buy or sell their business, you know, wanting to buy a business, they're wanting to better the health of their current business. And I remember something interesting um, we had discussed at one point was sometimes you can better the health of your business by simply consolidating your business. So you had talked about um, the regions that you're working in. So sometimes if you're, if you're looking at, um, we're spending X amount of on sending guys out to here, but the bulk of our business is centrally located. You can actually better the health of your business by letting go of business. Is that true? 
Well, yeah, because I mean, ultimately you have to look at how do you generate your revenue? Um, so in general, if your, if your revenue or your, your, your hourly revenue is, is the same, no matter where you go, right. Then the best thing to do is to cut down the amount of time behind the windshield, right? The unbillable hour, then you get the most billable hours. Um, you know, but sometimes people, depending on where they work, they might get a higher dollar per hour in an outlying area from where they're based. So it's really, you just got to know your business. That's kind um, of like us. We're in such a rural area in Kentucky that we live in a really small town. If we were to only work locally, we would just never make it. So right. our service radius is an hour and a half in all directions, which stinks, but that's what we got to do here. Yeah, so true. So there's there's really no one answer for that. Mm -hmm. um, I've had businesses where we've ex extended out just like you about an hour and a half or so. And then some of those businesses I ended up pulling back on the, the geographical region because we could stay just as busy in a smaller region and the rates were kind of the same no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, and so why drive too far if you don't have to? Yeah. I think that's a very interesting thing that early on um, living in this part of Kentucky, we're, we're only about an hour away from Tennessee and then an hour past that's Nashville. And early on, there was a lot of large commercial that for whatever reason was calling us. And um, thankfully my wife, <laughs> she had a good head on her shoulder. She said, I don't really want you driving two hours each direction to go all the way out there. And that was, that was a really good call. And it saved us because if we would have become established over there, but we're living over here, I mean, at a certain point you're spreading yourself too thin. Yeah. Yeah. So true. Yeah. Well, really appreciate your time, Paul. Uh, one last question. What is your secret on winning the medley? You've won it like, I don't know how many times. <laughs> Oh, the IWCA contest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, eight or nine times. I, I I'm not sure. <laughs> Keep cleaning windows, Joel. Okay, I'll, I'll get there one day. Yeah, no, it's just you know those contests are all about having fun and right and being with uh, being with window cleaners old and new and doing the trade we all love. Yeah. I can't wait for the next one. Yeah, hopefully we'll be beyond the pandemic we're in now. Yeah, there's brighter things in the future. Well, thanks for visiting with us, Paul. I uh, hope our listeners enjoyed this conversation. And uh, I feel like there's a lot more to talk about. So if you ever want to come back on the podcast, just let us know. There's always topics. Awesome. Thank you so much, Paul. Have a great day. Yeah, you too, Joe. Thanks for the time. All right, bye-bye.